this week's VFX show, I'm Mike Seymour, joined by an international interstellar cast, starting with my good friend Zap. How are you, my friend? Still alive, as usual. Excellent, excellent. What's the weather like where you are, sir? Uh, kind of wettish and dull and grey. We haven't had any snow or real winter yet, so it's kind of depressing looking out the window. So I avoid doing that. And, and by a relative newcomer to the VFX show, Andrew Usher. How are you, Andrew? Yeah, I'm doing fine, mate. Thanks very much. So we're here to talk about Interstellar. And uh, just a big warning, we're going to have massive amounts of spoilers and a reasonable amount of geekiness. Um, Zap, you really wanted to talk about this uh, film on uh, back channels. Why is that? Well, first of all, I absolutely love this movie love it to death i want to have its babies uh it's like it's like the action movie version of 2001 you never got uh it's like the probably best hard sci-fi i've seen and i can't remember when so uh i have a very soft spot in my heart for this movie and i enjoy it very much and some people had issues with the plot here and there. I don't have issues with the plot as much as I might have some issues with some characters' motivations and a little bit of um, magic spaceship physics, but we'll get into that eventually. But yeah, and of course, I'm a complete nerd when it comes both to space and, uh, you know, relativity. So I guess we'll derail into that a little bit going down this discussion. I, I look forward to it, my friend. Andrew, what did you think of the film? Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. It's, uh, I mean, I was really looking forward to it for quite a long time, so I, I tried to stay away from every source of social media known to kind of mankind, uh, and I even made the 200-mile trip to Glasgow to see it in IMAX. I really enjoyed it, but there are a few things about the film that did really niggle me, um, which is mainly to do with sound and some focus pulling. Um, but generally, I thought it was okay. What I was surprised about, though, was that at the end of the movie, when I was in the working out getting parking sorted out, and I was listening to other people, no one seemed to like it. <laughs> it was really, really quite kind of strange listening to the crowds of people. Nobody had anything nice to say about it, which kind of made me wonder: you know, were they watching the same what? movie as I was? Well, yeah, I mean, it was really strange. People, yeah. I think um, I, the big problem, I guess, for our showing was that the sound was really dreadful. Um, yeah, I heard, I really heard about these Sunday shows. I mean, first of all, we get it, uh, you know, subtitled. So if the dialogue is a bit muffled, maybe you don't even think about that so much. But I don't think we had any of those sound problems. To me, the sound mix sounded fantastic. So I there, don't know. there was a couple of points. <clears throat> so I saw it in IMAX as well. I saw it in IMAX film IMAX on one of only, I think, about 50 screens in the world that uh, did that. So shot film, shot, projected on film. And, um, for example, there's a scene in the uh, ship where we first see his daughter now as an adult talking. And I think yeah. he doesn't hear her because his ship is leaving docking. And we can't really make out what she's saying. And then later in the film, we get to hear that same clip properly. Um, and I assumed that the sound problem as his ship was leaving and he wasn't getting her message was in fact deliberate. Um, other than that, I think I heard the audio pretty pretty well. So yeah, I didn't have a sound. I know people have complained about it, but we look, we're not here to praise a film because it's popular. We like it when it is popular. If we like it, um, 
good example of that is Guardians, but I don't care whether this film is uh, thought to be popular or not. I thought it was fascinating. Um, really, really And we should say, before we go much further, if you listening to this have not seen this movie, hit the pause button now. <laughs> go see the movie and then unpause because you need to see it like that. That You cannot be spoiled because it'll spoil you completely. So, yeah. So, okay, let's do, <laughs> just discuss the film now. Um, I love a good time travel type thing, um, though I would argue this film has no actual time travel in it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love that kind of a film. And I, I you know, have been unashamedly uh, positive in saying so. So I thought the film was good and I didn't have major plot problems Um did anyone have like some major stuff at the plot level before we get to the physics or the logic or the VFX? I think uh, the only plot problem for me, um, there. first of all, there's a couple of instances and others have, have said that of like who talks like this. There's this very some very stilted dialogue going on in some places. But I mean, it's a movie. You can have all sorts of styles in movies. You can be all Shakespearean, and or you can be supernatural in your in your speaking style. This was kind of almost leaning slightly Shakespearean at bits. Uh, it was, but I mean, you can take that as a style. So I don't have a big problem with it. I think maybe. Uh, a thing that was kind of missing and I bet we'll see a scene that explains this if there's an extended cut it was like really you know his motivation to actually go um, it was like it was a snap decision to say oh we we have a thing we need to send it into space and you who randomly walks down to our NASA base you're a great pilot and we didn't contact you we just let you stumble onto our base and now you're the pilot I don't think NASA ever worked like that and uh, I maybe in this situation it maybe would but wouldn't they have contacted him in that case and um, w then he suddenly says oh sure I'll go to space uh, I love my daughter and I don't want to leave her but bye bye daughter uh, I'm going to space it's like uh, <laughs> uh, it felt a little like the motivation could have been communicated more clearly that that's kind of I think that's the main plot nitpick because I have no problem with any of the timey-wimey spacey you know four-dimensional stuff in any way uh, I understood the three minutes into the film when she mentioned ghost uh, I knew okay that's what how the movie will end so I I, I maybe I read too much sci-fi but it was obvious to me what would happen um, but so maybe that surprised other people and they thought it was a weird thing to me it was the obvious thing and actually even though I did figure out it immediately what was going to happen at the end it didn't spoil it for me it actually made it more enjoyable as I saw it, we're actually traveling and going going there basically now uh, the only thing I'd say is uh, we understand Murphy's role really well but Andrew did he also not have a son yeah well that's just the just, just yeah. Did he not I, want I to get back to his really, son? Yeah. Did he not like his son? Strange. Is that why his I son mean, became I, I a bit of a jerk? Yeah. I mean, I just felt that. I mean, I, I had my issue really was to do with that. I mean, if this was a story about love and it was about five dimensions and space time travel, it's fine. But it just seemed very self focused in two characters, really, namely himself and his daughter. And I mean, I can understand that, but I just felt. Then everything else became like a byproduct. It was it was just filler time. I just didn't feel it really, you know. I don't think his son really factored in much. 
Um, so I kind of felt the running time could have been cut back a little bit because we didn't really need all that side of the story to be told. Yeah, although he he did get to say proper goodbye to his son and the son kind of agreed for him to leave. So I think that was the th- the reason he was hung up on the daughter that he basically promised her to come back. He never promised the son to come back. And she was so sad when he left and all that stuff. So I, I I can more understand that part actually that the son wasn't like the focus when he was, was gone, but the daughter was. Besides, son was just like a farm boy. She was the science girl. So. Yeah, I just thought it was quite strange we did it, but but yeah, I mean the, I agree with yourself as well in the sense that the, the you know the, the the element of him becoming the pilot was uh, I thought fairly convoluted. I thought I thought it didn't really contain much backstory or really describe it too well. But apart from that, I was okay with that. And, and how come they stopped learning how to use MRI machines as they still had drones and uh, electronic uh, <laughs> laptops that could bring down drones and uh, people still went to college and uh, I don't know why they stopped using MRI machines. That seemed like a sort yeah, of odd thing. Was ca- their post-apocalyptic world was kind of randomly technological, so I, I can agree with that. Although, you yeah. know, in one sense, I kind of enjoy, you know, if you go back to real old-school hard sci-fi, like books from the 50s, early Arthur C. Clarke, which, by the way, there was a lot of Arthur C. Clarke references in this movie. But so you had a style of sci-fi which was... Like it was really about the science and the technology, and characters sometimes were complete cardboard cutout. If you read something like Rendezvous with Rama, which was clearly referenced in this movie, or like um, the sixth column from Heinlein, which I recently reread, it's really like the 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 character as such complete cardboard cutouts and it's all about the science it's all about what happens and all that stuff and this movie was a little bit for me at least like that if you felt people were card kind of cardboard cutouty i actually kind of enjoy that in an old school hard sci-fi kind of way okay so so where do we want to start on the visual effects obviously spectacular work from dean egg headed by uh, paul franklin I got to speak to him a couple of days ago about the film. Uh, really interesting. I think that um, that the team there has done a spectacularly good job. Um, in obviously, the focus of the press that they kind of put out was about um, the black hole, and um, and the press sort of bounced around a bit on whether they actually went to a black hole or a wormhole, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, but like, the visualization of the uh, black hole was the early pre-press. And by all accounts, a remarkable piece of engineering. Um, <clears throat> you obviously know, if, if you're listening to this, that uh, the black hole was 3D and it was rendered by Deneg. But mo- maybe you don't know is that not only did they have to do an enormous amount of maths to deal with the curvature of light, because as I'm sure, Zap, you'd testify, most ray tracing algorithms kind of assume a point-to-point kind of straight line for their rays in ray tracing. Exactly. That uh, apart from be- rays bending when going into different media for index of refraction, rays are in ten- ten- tend to be straight things. So tracing rays in a curve is uh, kind of complex. Yes. Yeah. But the other thing that was kind of interesting is that they actually had to modify the nature of the beams because the actual diameter, like the the actual nature of the beams was changed by the gravitational properties um so when they were modeling it they really were uh doing sensational work in terms of um the maths that involved and 
And we all know now that uh, they had a executive producer on the project um, that was uh, consulting, I guess, um, but he had the title of executive producer. Uh, Kip, who was uh, just uh, producing amazing stuff. So um, by all accounts, uh, DNEG benefited enormously from having Kip Thorne provide that role as scientific advisor and uh, feeding it, obviously, to Paul Franklin. But I think that those complex mathematical equations that uh, Kip worked out in Mathematica were then sent over to um, Oliver James at DNEG, and he's the chief scientist, and I think it's he who takes a lot of the credit for the dealing with that maths. And so he bloody ought to. The guy himself has a degree in optics and atomic physics, which is pretty interesting. So just a remarkable piece of uh, rendering to kind of actually come up with a completely new render engine that's capable of um, producing that. And, uh, you know, DNEG now has their own complex um, uh, special purpose DNEG renderer for doing black holes. I'm sure that's going to come in handy all the time. I think it's called uh, (laughs) DNGR, which stands for Double Negative General Relativity Renderer. Wow. So uh, I think it's Oliver's so done exciting. A... It's so exciting as well what could come out of this. I, I just my mind boggled when I was thinking about it after the film, and I was thinking, you know, when you know when kind of physicist meets kind of VFX kind of shop, and what can be made. I think it's really exciting, and I think it could be really exciting for the future as well. And so I was really wow. It really blew my mind that I thought wow. I love the only controls they had on their black hole was rate of spin, mass, and diameter. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. So, it's not like you can light it, is it? You only change. <laughs> yeah. You only change what's behind it. Um, I thought it was interesting the shape that it is in the film, in the sense that uh, it has this. Uh, it looks like it's got a sort of a sloping back to it, because uh, if it was, for example, to use uh, an analogy, if it was like Saturn with a ring around it, then and you're facing it on the uh, the edge of that ring. Uh, of course, light bends around the black hole and the body of Saturn would, in this case, be that black hole. You actually see behind it because the light from the sort of effectively the the classic Saturn um, sort of plate, as it were, or the uh, ring at the back, which would normally be obscured by the physical body itself, that light from it that at that point bends right over the top of the black hole and comes out the other side. So it gets this quite interesting characteristic shape. It makes sense when you draw a diagram but it wasn't something that I expected and I had to look at it a few times to actually work out what I was looking at. What about you, Zap? Did it make sense? Yeah, it was the same. Actually, I think this is one of the kind of discoveries of this movie, how this would really kind of look. Uh, And there apparently are some physics papers coming out of this movie. I think uh, probably the first Hollywood movie generating physics uh, papers other than SIGGRAPH papers. So that's, you know, go interstellar. Um, So yeah, but, but when I saw it, to me, it was kind of like, of course, that's how it... I, I never imagined it in my head before. I, I'm even thinking gravitational lensing is a known effect, mm. you know, but, like, the black hole itself would look like that. Uh, I It's was one of those... Of course, when you see it, but before you see it, it's not of course at all. So, yeah, I, I love that bit. Um, also, that was kind of interesting, that idea of the ring around it, uh, the uh, huge... Uh, gravimetric forces causing the exploding or the kind of collapsing of the gases and the things that gives it that kind of ring look <clears throat> which made it a very dramatic and uh and and well suited for cinematic kind of exploration um and i think the other thing that was interesting is that they got all that working before principal photography so when wow. they when the actors sat in their you know plastic spaceship on the gimbal um 
thanks to some rather large projectors that Paul uh, Franklin managed to uh, organise. I think they had two 40,000 lumen projectors on top of each other. So they were overlapping the same image to get enough exposure. They actually, outside the you know cockpit windows, got to see that black hole um, happening in such vivid uh, kind of light levels that the DOP could actually light their shots based on the actual light coming through the windows, which I think... Um, it sort of harks back to what we saw in uh, some earlier films where they built these large sets with large projectors around it, allowing the actors to really be immersed. And there was a, what was the Tom Cruise one with the um, the planet, uh, gosh. Oblivion. Oblivion, thank you. Yes, they did that on yep. the uh, on the sky sort of uh, house, I guess, that they had with the swimming pool up in the clouds. Uh, same thing, they projected that, uh, that cloud vista uh, on the set, but... This was um, remarkable also because it was shot in IMAX and so you were trying to get exposure levels for, uh, for a bit of film without the sensitivity of digital cameras. Um, that was really friggin' big piece of film at that. So, yeah, uh, yeah, so one, one thing I think that may, may, was maybe uh, slightly wrong with that depiction of the black hole, it's, uh, allegedly it's a supermassive black hole and also a rotating supermassive black yep. hole, which means the accretion disk, as this is called, would probably be be visibly spinning um, more than it probably did in the movie and I would assume if it's really a supermassive black hole with a very large radius uh, that you would actually see relativistic effects in the spinning of the accretion disk itself which I would assume would entail some Doppler shift so you would see a red and blue shifting of the light on the on the two edges I didn't see them add that in the movie that you had any any Doppler shift of the light so light frequencies changed by these things uh, maybe it didn't spin fast enough for that and I'm wrong but well, no, uh, but it would be like an additional. But it's meant to be spinning cool, very like. fast, right? I mean, at the, yeah. its core, it's not spinning like it's not spinning Earth around the Sun fast. I mean, it's spinning really fast. Mm -hmm. Yes. Plus, it uh, uh, apparently the accretion disk would also be extremely bright, like radiating, like in every band. So it probably it will kill you with radiation if you were anywhere near it. So that's one of the issues with the science in the film. They kind of conveniently ignore the radiation factor and it probably would be way brighter but hey you know artistic license yeah i think there's probably <laughs> a couple of other artistic licenses that they were cashing in um <laughs> andrew how viable yeah. was it for you the notion that uh that they handled the time aspects the way that they did because you know if you get basically in space you can travel for an incredibly long time to just get anywhere um, did you yep. feel like it was a viable sense of time or they were really zipping around the place at the speed of knots? Um, I, I'm not sure I was completely sold by the, the time element of the movie, if I'm honest. Um, I just felt that it seemed very vague at times. It was just a, like making assumptions that, well, you know, if we've got the planet, we'll be X amount of time, etc. And I, I didn't feel there was any real discussion about it or or anything so as I was kind of saying that I felt I was kind of dropping out of the experience of the film a little bit as I sat back and thought about things and then I'd drop back in and then I'd drop back out and I guess I really wasn't convinced by that element but it was it wasn't enough to really detract from the film for me but I just I, I wasn't overly convinced by that at all uh, I remember sitting making a little note um, to myself that I should call a couple of my 
friends that do astrophysics and <laughs> have a chat about this. Um, so I wasn't really, I, I was, I wasn't overly sold by it. Um, I just felt that it was, it was really vague at times. Um, but it's a film, I and mean, you just, I guess, you just go with the flow, and, and so yeah. So for for me, it's more that depends on what time ac- aspect we're talking about. If we're talking about the relativistic time aspect of time passing, you know, more more slowly versus places and others, or are we talking about just the time it takes them from getting from planet A to planet B? I was because talking about, is, yeah, planet A to planet B at this stage before B, we got into right. the Because th- that is really also what is like, that's totally the sci-fi part of this movie. It's this magic little spaceship. When they launch from Earth, they do it properly with a huge booster to get into orbit and all that stuff. That's the kind of tech you need to get off a planet. Going into space space is easy. You just go straight up 100 kilometers and you're in space. You don't take much fuel, but if you turn your engines uh, off, you fall back down again because there's a thing called gravity that'll suck you down. And 100 kilometers up, unlike what most people think, there's not zero gravity because there's just as much gravity there as on, on the ground almost. Uh, because the Earth is much much bigger than that. What happens when you go into space is you go into orbit. To go into orbit, you need to accelerate to at least 7.2 kilometers per second. That's a very, very high speed, and that's what you need all the rockets for, not going up, going sideways. To go into space is about going sideways, actually, not going up. Yeah, we basically. This tiny ship was lacking those things. Yeah, yeah. we all yeah, remember from school physics. You fire the uh, bullet off the top of a mountain, and you fire it far enough and long enough, and it actually falls off the end of the world and goes into orbit, kind of thing. Um, yep. But yes, it's that going sideways thing uh, that, and then of course your centrifugal force is countering your gravitational force about coming down. But I found it just a bit like when they came off the planet, uh, where the surprise guest star was uh, hibernating and started to zoom around we didn't seem to go back into the sleep apparatus we just seemed to be able to you know whip around pretty quickly and you couldn't in my mind get from any planet to any black hole in any time quick because anything that close to black hole uh, and for that matter i found well what do you think about the water planet Mm, i wasn't overly sold on it if i'm honest um it's okay but just seemed to fill a void just for the storytelling part I felt I just felt um yeah I just felt it was another this was my problem I guess with the movie to a certain extent was, was things were just thrown in I think as filler rather than making any real cohesive kind of central plot or attaching itself and I, I just kind of felt again it's it, it was just rather strange that they could just pop down have a disaster pop back up and you know the, the time element just kind of was fairly non-existent to a certain extent other than vague references to, you know, disparate time and, and all these type of things. My thing yeah, was... For th- me, for me, the, the problem with the t- that plan was actually more, uh, or more of what I just mentioned. Like, so, okay, you're going down a gravity well that is so strong that you have a 60,000 to 1 time dilation. Somebody computed, that's the number. Uh, and then you're going back up against that piece of gravity. Okay, what's the escape velocity for that? Yeah. <clears throat> Where's your boosters? Uh, so that was actually much more my issue with that planet than it was a planet with convenient ways deep water where they landed and then there was mountain high uh, you know tidal waves allegedly from the black hole mm, maybe not, maybe maybe not I and uh, you know yeah gravity wells are a bitch yeah I mean that <laughs> tidal wave was meant to be 4,000 feet tall 
And for me, what I was missing was the pre-wave sucking towards the wave. Like I expected the water not to be still where they were. If there was a huge wave coming, I'd expect it to be rushing towards the wave. Because uh, in a normal tsunami where the wave doesn't actually get more than a few metres high but does tremendous damage, you know, you sort of basically empty a large uh, section of what would otherwise be beach as the water runs out before that wave turns and comes back in again. So if you're going to have a 4,000 right. foot and wave, I expect a lot of running water towards learned, it. Plus what we learned back in 2004 with the tsunami is that they aren't actually like these big towering things. They're more like a, a, you know, a, a swell. tide coming in really quickly, a swell. Yeah. So, but I mean... It looked awesome, right? We're supposedly talking about the visual effects. <laughs> so I think from a look point of view, it was quite well done. Uh, and the, the whole sequence looked, to me, quite uh, believable in the sense of visual believable. Less believable in the sense of would that happen believable. But uh, visually, it was quite fine. Anything I'd call you out there on the uh, time dilation uh, physics, the, the exit velocity is not uh, is a true point in the sense that I, you know you needed a lot of there seemed to be sensible kind of gravity down on the planet. So relative to Earth, there was no booster rockets. It was just a small ship coming off. But surely the time dilation wasn't uh, just a function of the localized gravity but also a function of where it was in the gravity sphere of the black hole. In other words, if to have that kind of time dilation with the density of gravity centered on the planet they landed on, that have all been crushed under massive gravitational forces, uh, they seem to be walking around relatively normally. So we, we are led to believe that the, the spin of that planet counters its own gravitational issues to an extent um, and then you've got this huge sure. time dilation from the, it spinning around the black hole. Yeah, except the other guy apparently uh, ended up in orbit around the black hole waiting for them. So he had aged when they had not. So there's still a delta of, you know, from the black hole delta uh, of the various time dilations we have to fight. So ugh, it's still tricky. So th- I think the wave was convincing. I think it's a really hard thing to have something look that big. Uh, especially water, but I just felt it could have been sold a lot more if the water had been rushing towards that thing and they hadn't understood why. And uh, <clears throat> and as a consequence, a lot of sort of stuff was revealed in terms of rocks and stuff, only to then realise that um, they're at the last stages of... Uh, like if they felt like they're at the bottom of an ocean, but why does it feel like this? And then all of a sudden you realise that uh, the only reason the water level is that low is because uh, it's all been sucked up with these massive waves. I think I would have just believed it a lot more. Um, but I think just as a pure wave, it was a really pretty good effect. It was quite, I thought it was quite a striking effect, especially in IMAX. I think you got a real sense of depth and dimension to it. Um, what do you think What do you think about the, that's also one of the key sequences for the robots actually showing why they brought them along. Um, because, you know, they, uh, they definitely uh, produced a, interesting looking robot it's a very non-humanistic robot it's very um uh functional looking you know this whole idea of a of an ai robot that's a um ex-military kind of 200 pound robot thing 
I wouldn't use the word functional <laughs> in this case in the sense that <laughs> I think that design is supremely impractical. It looks awesome and I gave the movie like a thumbs up for trying something different. But I really let that I compartmentalized in my mind artistic license for coolness because there's no way in my head I can make those things be practically useful or even how the hell they would be designed to be assembled like that and be able to magically do the weird things they did in the bizarre ways they did it. So it was like I was actually when I saw the trailer because I only saw one I thought those were some aliens they met or something when I, that, that turned out to be actually robots robots from Earth, I was like, okay, didn't expect that, because QB walking aliens, you know, that, that I would kind of <laughs> more get than we built robots like that suddenly, why? But hey, they, were, they looked awesome and were funny. Yeah, I, I felt there, there, it seems strange that if, if that was the type of robot they were building, that they didn't make them have a much more kind of practical aesthetics to them. It just seemed a very strange <laughs> couple of robots. Uh, I mean, I liked them, but I just found the same type of thing. I thought, why would you build something that has very little kind of ability to use any real useful functions of picking things up or grabbing it? I, I, I just found them really strange, actually. Very retro looking and um, reminded me of a Minecraft Enderman. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, this is M Minecraft the movie. I never thought about that. <laughs> okay. And R two D two was never a particularly practical design either. So, like coolness wins in this case, same as for R two D two, I guess. Mm. Okay, so we now get to the uh, the meat of the matter, which is obviously going into the black hole and uh, changing dimensions and allowing ourselves to communicate. So, uh, Zap, take us away. At what point do we uh, feel that it's okay to fly into a black hole and not be crushed by the gravitational forces? Well, yeah, that's, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who actually surprisingly liked this movie a lot. Uh, it's interesting to follow these science people on, on the net. You know, Phil Plait, the bad astronomer, he actually did not like the movies. I have lots of science problems with it and say this is wrong and that that is wrong and the third thing is wrong. And then he learned later that it's actually a rotating supermassive black hole. So he had to eat crow on a couple of those things he said <laughs> wrong and they're actually right. But he still... I still says I don't like the movie and then Neil deGrasse Tyson who actually was so much complaining about the star sky that uh, James Cameron used in Titanic that the stars in the sky were wrong you would expect him to go down with fury on this film but actually he loved the movie and he was so happy about some uh, stuff from the science and like every character is actually an engineer or uh, or like a physicist half of them are women and all those like he was really liking this movie but anyway Neil deGrasse Tyson tend to talk about the concept of spaghettification like when you get close to uh, a, a black hole the delta in in uh, the difference in gravity from your feet to your head is so large that you'll basically be torn to shreds in principle although if your black hole is supermassive being meaning really really large uh, the actual you know difference becomes smaller when it's also spinning and that also helps so there's a bunch of hand waving maybe going around with the spinning black hole and the supermassive black hole and maybe maybe perhaps but yeah i don't think you can 
kind of really go into i i wouldn't want to be the first one to try going into <laughs> black hole i want to watch the other guy first <laughs> maybe that's just me <laughs> but you know artistic license again and it was very like you know did you realize the nod to t there was a very clear nod to 2001 actually first of all the, the sequence of going in was looking very like the the you know the stargate sequence in 2001 but there is a shot coming just after that where we see cooper in the left side of the frame looking right and his space helmet is on so you see like the, the visor going in and that shot is nearly identical to the shot at the end of 2001 where we have this star child in its little embryonic sac uh, transparent thing floating in space on the left side of frame turning right so th this clearly nods to stuff like 2001 in here i mean the robots were walking monoliths right yeah so yeah uh, yeah. yeah and I, I really what i really like is when we actually get into the black hole itself into this constructed tesseract kind of thing where space-time is all jumbled that was visually done very interestingly I, I thought and i i like that a lot does it make sense to what you would actually see well possibly not but it it was something i, I enjoy that a lot <laughs> i like to i thought i mean I, aside from the fact of being torn to shreds I, I thought i thought it was an interesting concept um i thought it just kind of kind of metaphysical kind of element to it which i kind of liked um but yeah, I guess for me, I, I guess within the first ten minutes of watching the film, I figured that the ghost element there had to be some kind of interdimensional shift or, or or something should has to occur to complete the kind of the end of the movie. So I wasn't overly surprised, which disappointed me a little bit. Um, but I thought it looked great actually. I thought it looked really really good. The whole linear time and being able to move around it, and I thought it was quite interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. I was actually slightly, even I called it from the beginning that this is what was going to happen, like I said, when I saw the start of the movie. But I was actually, the only slight disappointment I had, they kept talking about some super advanced five-dimensional race that set this up for them. I think yep. it would have been even cooler in the end if it turned out it was actually him who did it all of it it was there, there was no five-dimensional race there was no hyper beings it was actually him that did everything that would have you know wrapped a nice even nicer bow on it so somehow when he's in the black hole he discovers these like even more higher level of power somehow and can like rearrange physics put the put the wormhole out you know by Saturn and all that stuff that that would have like been even nicer this is almost like an opening for interstellar 2 the interstellaring where we meet the the uh, five dimensional aliens hang, hang on wait wait there were no five dimensional aliens it was us in the future that that produced the well, tesseract okay. yeah okay right so whatever but us in the future, uh, it would be cooler if it was really actually him in the now that did it for me. Yeah, I would have found that uh, sure. too too convenient. To uh, yeah, no, I I liked the idea. It was okay. yeah. some help, but it wasn't aliens. It was us. So yeah, yeah, <clears throat> that's fine. That's fine. So the yeah, I was the same. I would have been. I think I'd have been disappointed if there was another super species race that that had set all this up and there was. I I like the fact that. You know, there was a beginning and an end, and it was all interconnected. Yeah. And that it was us in the future, 
and I really liked that. I, that really sat really nice with me at the end of the movie and gave me, I, I guess, a kind of sense of closure at the end because um, I would really have... I, I don't think I'd have warmed as much to some super alien species kind of um, setting all this up for us. And So I, I liked it, actually. I really did like the ending, actually. Yeah, Ma- that movie was called Contact. It was also Matthew McConaughey flying into... Although he didn't fly into the thing, but he was in the movie. There was also a watch-like object being handed to the person flying from one space to another that saved the end of the movie, etc., etc. There's a lot of Contact references in the mo- this movie, too, and apart from Mr. McConaughey himself, of course. <coughs> okay, so so he goes into the black hole and he's moved into a fifth dimensional tesseract. So he, he basically moves out of three dimensions into fourth or fifth dimensions, depending on whether you think uh, time is a fourth dimension or not. And so um, he leaves our brain as in membrane. He leaves and goes into the bulk. And then in this tesseract, he's able to interact with... Uh, with his uh, child Murphy's timeline, effectively. Um, how much do you think you needed to have some understanding of the infinite sort of uh, uh, plane theory? And how much do you feel like you had to understand? Because I went to a lot of trouble to not break time can't, you know, you can't go back in time. I mean, there was a very elaborate system to build up so that he could send back gravitational waves uh, so as to communicate, as opposed to showing himself, which would cause light to go back in time, or himself going back in time. Yeah, the gravity aspect was interesting, uh, that they, they basically said that the only thing that could go back in time somehow was now gravity, which is sort of true, but not. It's a long story. But uh, anyway, you can wonder why only in this particular room what was so special with her bookshelf i wondered and you know why did he have to be behind the bookshelf to do everything couldn't he step into the room and do some stuff for artistic license i guess but i I, yeah i think it was kind of cool that he couldn't just do like anything and he had to come up with the system to to communicate through then again, how did you gravitationally move the needle on the clock, I guess? But, yeah, I guess you could. Well, no, you could do that because he's tweaking he's tweaking effectively the strings. So, so if we think of four dimensions as being mm-hmm. three dimensions connected via time, and I, I know that's not a given, but anyway, let's assume it is for a second. So a dot or a ball becomes a piece of spaghetti effectively. If you treat that then like a bit of string and you tweak it and you cause some kind of gravitational tweak or ping or, you know, basically a frequency response to travel down it, it's like grabbing a giant skipping rope and sort of flicking one end of it and that seeing that uh, ripple go down. And more to the point, as she got closer to his timeline, theoretically, to become stronger, not less. Um, so, you know, I thought that was a kind of a reasonable thing. and And then gravity acts on everything so it's reasonable that it could act on a watch as much as it could act on dust or uh, or anything else it's not like um it's not like a magnetic force uh so i thought that was kind of interesting and i thought what was particularly spectacular is the visualization of the tesseract uh and his interaction with it it was you know mm-hmm. the contact we've talked about a, a lot she goes in through a wormhole which is kind of less solid science in the first place and then she has this kind of dream sequence, which is terrific in the film Contact. I love that film. But it's, you know, basically saying we have no idea what goes on here, so we're just going to have a dream. And the implication in Contact is that, you know, this is how we've made first contact with everybody 
since for forever. And, uh, you know, we just use their kind of memories to interact with them, which is great, but it had no kind of science. You didn't think you're on the beach with a, with a palm tree. Um, this one, you know, they're trying to build up uh, a very visual representation, um, a scientific visualization. And I thought just did a cracking job. And, and almost I have a lot more respect for that than the black hole stuff. Though the black hole stuff is great, simply because I feel like the black hole while uh, probably vastly mathematically more complex and worthy of respect, is a visualization of kind of a scientific um, uh, thing with less interpretation. It was the interpretive representation mm -hmm. that Deneg pulled off with the Tesseract that I just thought was uh, astonishingly good. Because, I mean, even if you have no idea what was going on and you really have no real feeling for the sense that he's negotiating uh, in higher dimensions and his higher dimensions are interacting with the 3D world and, and stuff, you would have got it. I mean, it would have been understandable there, what the intent there's, was. <clears throat> there's a couple of really cool, subtle things going on in the visual. First, in the beginning of this sequence, I mean, he goes into... He, he flies through some weird lighty thing very very 2001-ish and then this starts gets all like stretched out like in a single uh, in, in in like a single direction so everything becomes like thin flat leaves of something which then he he flies by that and suddenly there's vertical leaves in that which you then realize is actually the pages in the books in the bookshelf and I thought that little transition was such beautiful from being some random stripes into suddenly the random stripes are actually uh, he's seeing pages in, in the bookshelf, which was very clever and beautifully done. The other one is a shot from top where you see him like looking down through versions of the room, slightly offset in time. So you see young Murph going in round the bed and this slightly offset in time versions like going down infinitely. This Murph is all the way down basically. That was also really, and he's like takes a dive into time dimension and swims swims up, you know, to, to some other point in time and does stuff. I, I thought it was fantastic. I, I really, I actually want to go and see it again just to see that sequence because it was very I'm this. I'm the same. That's just that. That was probably the highlight for me in a lot of ways of the movie. And I think looking at the audience at the time, I think it, in a lot of ways that made a lot more sense to people than a lot of the other previous parts of the film. And I think, I think it was really, really well done. And I, I think that it had a sense of urgency as well that I felt mm. that other parts of the movie didn't have. It had a real sense of pace. You know, there's suddenly the realization that he could send back some kind of signal or information and then suddenly you've seen the pace really pick up and you know and all the data coming to him and i'm working out how to do it and i, I really liked it i loved the look of it i thought it was absolutely fantastic i thought it was really really well done and I, that was probably the highlight for me of the whole movie in a lot of ways was that that whole sequence i thought it was just it looked fantastic yeah, i thought it was very visually satisfying um and did you see at the end it does a um like a hypercube animation trick uh to get out of the collapsing tesseract um, yeah there was a very nice folding in impossible ways when it shuts down which i also liked a lot having a hypercube rotation in there was a real you know 
that was a that was like a an in joke for the geeks of the audience but i'm sure for the team that worked on it themselves now you probably have seen in the popular press there were no green screens so that tesseract sequence as was the case with the early one stuff we were discussing they built a partial set and then they had uh, i believe projectors projecting stuff um on and then they extended that out in post and so in fact uh with the exception i think when he goes to that kind of tunnel effect and he's moving up and down uh, you had the actor seeing something that they could relate to. And even when he was moving through the tunnel, they had those projectors running to give contact lighting on Cooper's or his suit so that uh, when they put in the digital version afterwards, it would be there. But as I say, like the early one, they did this on set, so they had to have worked out the Tesseract and get something that was visually in the right zone uh, to shoot in principle photography, moving so much stuff zapped to pre-production. Yeah, that I think that helps in this kind of things. for the actor obviously as we saw in and for actually for the indirect lighting which I think gravity is a spectacular example of where we could get all these bounce lights onto Sandra Bullock and her spacesuit as much as we actually saw the real spacesuit basically from these projectors surrounding uh, surrounding her and it really I mean as it did then you know the the space lighting in gravity was really nice a thing that i really liked in this movie was also space lighting and also the way they shot stuff i absolutely enjoyed but did you notice there was almost no shots of the space stuff from space it was almost always like a camera mounted to the spaceship exactly the way we get actual nasa footage like there's a camera on the belly of the space shuttle when the tank separates and stuff you can see on nasa tv and whatever most of the shots of the space thingy flying around was actually from such a camera and it made it look really i don't know if that was cg or uh, it looked so good actually I'm kind of suspecting that might have been a piece of model in a lighting rig like you uh, describe to get it to look like that physical or maybe they uh, up the rendering so that it was all CG I don't know the answer to that because it, it looked really super realistic from like the, the shots from the belly of the space thingy they did do a lot of the space shots the you know the craft and stuff as miniatures with New Deal Studios um, they're great people, New Deal. I mean, really nice, just about the nicest people I've ever met in the industry, actually. But um, do you, what do you think of the spaceships? Do you think that it was worth having those as uh, miniatures or bigatures? Or do you feel, because, uh, you know, there was some stuff out there in the in the kind of internet saying, well, they've done it old school and it shows because it's not as interesting as it would be today if you'd done it with digital. Hmm. I don't know if I agree with that, actually. I think it looked fantastic. I think for me watching it, I thought it had that when I, and after I came home after watching the movie I was kind of watching some clips and bits about to do it and I was watching the interview they were talking about IMAX and the you know space station and, and how they looked all that footage and, and I think it paid dividends because I think it, it, it didn't look too futuristic um, you don't have crazy holographic HUDs and all these type of things. It looked really real, I thought. I thought it looked like what you would expect to see in the space shuttle. or So I thought it made it very accessible. And I thought it looked fantastic. I really, really liked it. I really, I thought the the, the kind of the modeling work was, was really fantastic. And the, the miniatures, I think it looked really, really great. There's nothing about it that made me think, oh. Because you know how it is nowadays. A lot of times things are just so CG. You just think, oh. And this didn't do this for me. I thought this was really accessible and really kind of current. And I really loved it. I really, really liked it. 
So what do you think about the use of those uh, spaceships? Yeah, I, I wonder if the people that have those objection are objection are objecting to what they actually see on the screen as in the realistic part of the ship, or if they are uh, objecting to this stylistic choice I just mentioned where they had basically bolted the camera to the model. That was an intentional stylistic choice. Whether you do that in CG or bolt it to a miniature, miniature that's, you know... Um, you decide you want to do it in that style of photography so what would have gained what would you have gained by making that in cg uh because there was some small like super fine detail is really hard in cg it's one of the the most interesting research topics right now you know you have microstructure in materials and you have micro microstructure below that which really gives the high level um you know, reflectance of the material is actually small reflections on even smaller reflections. There's really no such thing as a glossy material. Everything is actually completely mirror reflective, but you, th it's in the shape of the microstructure that makes the stuff glossy. And everything where you, any t point you have computer graphics simulating glossy reflection, it's a, like a hacky trick to simulate what is really a micro um, a microstructure effect. And this is still really hard for computer graphics to do it like to the really absolutely highest level. So there was some little detail. I was looking at one of these shots seen from the belly of the ship. There was like some some like um, heat tiles things that looked like you put on the actual space shuttle and there was some kind of foam looking thing at the front which really looked more realistic than I would expect CG to look. So it wouldn't surprise me if this really was a miniature or a bigature. Uh, because the microstructure issue is something that, that is still hard in computer graphics. So I, I think they did win something. And even if that also made them, forced them into this stylistic shooting style i don't think so because i think that was planned but if it did i think the movie benefited from this particular style of shooting shooting the ships because it, it for me at least to watch nerd space nerd as i am who watched these nasa you know footage of space shuttles taking off like i feel at home seeing this you know belly of the thing angle because i've seen it so many times and it's been real so it communicates real to my brain yeah you know you can buy dvds of all of the space launches like uh going back i'm such a nerd i bought a bunch of them and it's great you get to listen to the actual uh launches and see footage of them and i um, mean there's all the apollo ones they're great um i think the film benefited enormously from that as well i think it added realism having the lack of super flying around camera um <clears throat> i know you guys said you knew what was going on the whole time but i didn't feel like it was a mystery to be solved knowing what was going on I felt like, well, you could either be in the film or not in the film, as it were. But it wasn't like uh, I felt like, oh, now I've worked out what it is. The fun's gone out of the film. Like I enjoyed just watching it happen and unfold. No, no the journey, the journey is the the. It's not the destination. It's the journey. Yeah, for sure. In this movie. Yeah, and it just didn't. It wasn't like a. There are some films where you kind of discover who it was. Uh, and then you know, it's sort of less interesting, right? Because it's kind of you know what's happening and you know where it's going, and just kind of get there. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it is definitely a film. I've heard other people say this, where it's really hard to offer an opinion the second you walk out of the cinema. 
I loved the fact that when I came out, I could think about it on the drive home. I came out at like the midnight was when the session finished and they happened to have shut down a bunch of streets. So I was driving on really quiet streets, just pondering it as I drove along in a way that I don't with many popcorn films because they just, you know, like uh, fast food and you kind of, you say it and you're finished and you're done and you move on. Um, and this wasn't like that. And as the more that I've thought about it and pondered it and read about it and stuff and, uh, the, the more the film has grown on me. Now, the question is, will the film grow in the general public in the same way? Does this, do you think, uh, I mean, um, well, I guess either of you really, but take it in terms of Andrew, do you think this is a film that will sort of become some kind of cultish classic in the uh, respected sci-fi world, or is it, it is what it is? Will it age well? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I mean, I've I seen a late showing of it, so it was about half past two in the morning when we left on... I had the same kind of feelings as I left. Uh, I left really pondering a lot of the ideas of the movie and a lot of the scenes. And, you know, the drive back, me and my brother were chatting about it. It was a real, it's a movie. I, I guess it's one of those movies that's got a lot of afterthought when you're sitting. And I was thinking about this as well. I was thinking about all the people that were in the lobby at the end. And there was a lot of discussion about nobody really liked it. It was, it was too difficult to understand. And I was really surprised by that because I thought really in the in the crux of the movie, you've got this whole thing about the human race and you've got about love and, you know, what would you do with your family? There's a whole multifaceted kind of elements in the movie. I was surprised that people weren't really enjoying it. So I'm not really sure in five years' time what will people be saying about this movie? Was it just, you know, was it really that engaging or was it not? I'm I'm not... I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it'll hit a cult-like status or not. I think I'd like to think it did because I think it's a really good movie. I think there was so many elements to it, and there's a lot of real things to ponder in the movie. But I'm, I'm not. I'm to be honest, I'm really not sure how people see it. I, my the people I've spoken to didn't like it. Majority of them, which really surprised me. Really surprised me. Um, I haven't come across that many people yet that actually quite liked it. Um, I seem to be on the uh, the minority. So. I don't know. Well, you're, you're amongst friends here. Yeah, um, everyone in my family liked, liked it a lot. So, like, when we, we have a tradition of kind of doing a review of the movie and driving home in the car, we were even actually, me and my kids were supposed to put that, that up on YouTube. We're going to have a camera and do our little car reviews. We never actually brought the camera, but we do it almost as it would be a show. We discuss the thing. Everybody gives their points and stuff. And I gave it like a 9.5 out of 10 for me. And it was up there for like the rest of the family as well. So maybe we're too space nerdy in my house. I have no idea. I don't really get these people who really hate on the movie. I get the people that have some issues with the plots they might not like this hard sci-fi cardboard character thing which i actually kind of enjoyed um but and yeah really disliking it i don't get that honestly no i don't get it either i mean i feel like uh you want films that challenge you in terms of uh thinking about stuff and Definitely, I thought this was one of them. It just and just gave me a lot more food for thought. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a bad throat tonight. Um, it gave me a lot more food for thought than I even anticipated that it would. Uh, and I don't know, like I think you've got that great sci-fi fun film in a Guardians of the Galaxy. If you're going to go this way, it's nice to think that you're going to make an adult film with adult themes that, that does require some thinking. It doesn't have to all be easy to consume. And I think if you object to it being easy consumption, you may be 
just saw the wrong film. Yeah, I guess. I know. I just. I would agree. I would agree. Um, it's. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I was surprised that people around about me didn't. I was kind of. It's one of those strange moments. I thought, are people watching the same film that we're watching? It's uh, um, very, very strange. I mean, I do but get I the sound people... thing probably more than anything. Like, I get the plot thing. I'm not so much in the science. Um, and there also, I think sometimes films just get a bit of a meme going and people just, it's funny to crack jokes about it. And they don't even necessarily mean it. But I do think that the sort of more experimental stuff he was doing with the sound, uh, I could see that bugging people. I, I guess I would say that, but it didn't bug me. There was a particular experimental thing done with the sound, actually. I think it's in, in one of the things where Murphy is sending back this taped, uh, or, or, you know, the, the, the video message to, to Coop. And there's music playing and, you know, it's all emotional and everything. And then she just cuts off. And the music also cuts off as she cuts off, like to dead silence, like complete... And that was kind of strange because when you just cut music like that, it's almost like, wait, was that music that she had on on the TV? Or like, it makes you, uh, it, even though it actually removes the music, it makes you realize that the music was there in a way and kind of makes the movie making of a score, the movie making art of a score, which you're not supposed to think about, made you actually in that moment actually think about, oh yeah, there was score there and now it suddenly disappeared. Uh, it was still kind of effective because I think he was trying to communicate emptiness there, which was good, but maybe it put the finger a little too much on the score of the scoriness of the score, which I, by the way, liked a lot. Uh, so that was an odd uh, audio choice. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean the sound. I mean, I was I was okay with the sound. I I understood why people had issues with it. Um, but I I think a lot of times people don't really think about the overall complete process. And I was in the lobby chatting to a few people, and I said, well, maybe that's a creative choice that's been made. And if you consider the fact that that may be what it is, and I think I think that was maybe the, the problem. A lot of people, I think, people thought they were going to see Batman or, or something very similar. It was going to be all action. It was. And I, and I think a lot of people probably didn't really think about what the movie was, was really going to be about and how it was going to be filmed. Um, but the sound in our IMAX um, theatre, it was very, very loud. <laughs> was, my brother almost choked on a straw at one point when it was so loud with the explosion. Um, so I think a lot of people were struggling with the, the level of the sound in our theatre. Now, that could just be to that particular theatre. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But, I didn't see it in IMAX. The, we don't have an IMAX anywhere near where I live. I live in a fairly small uh, city. But the biggest theater we have, I saw it in, which seats about 200 people, I think. And I was on, like on the second row, which means even though the screen wasn't, uh, you know, in, in, you know, square feet, super large, it was really close to me. And they do have a, a banging sound system. So their subwoofers were quite clearly, um, you know, given their due in this movie because the, the theater was shaking. And I, I love when stuff shakes and my teeth rattle. So A plus for me. So uh, was there any scenes from a visual effects point of view that we didn't like, that we thought sort of didn't hold up? Uh, any comping, anything sort of... Um stood out that's easy no uh, <laughs> honestly uh there i i was thinking about that because i know you always ask that question and i sat here before we started recording and tried to f 
think of a single thing wrong visually, purely as visual effects with this movie. And I honestly cannot think of a single thing. Even things that are, you know, traditionally hard, like the weightlessness stuff. Yeah. Uh, it looked fantastic. I didn't fe get a feeling of being on wires in any way that kind of distracted me. Uh, no, I, I can't think of a single thing, actually. I, I think visually you probably have to label this thing as pretty much flawless. <laughs> Andrew? Um, I can't think of anything specific. Um, the only thing maybe for me was... Um, on you know on the water planet um and it wasn't really the water effect it was just the spacecraft um and i, I was assuming they, they were just miniatures of those anyway um i i didn't really like the design of it <laughs> um and i just felt it it just seemed in that whole sequence that it was floating which obviously it wasn't water but if it, it, it just something seemed not right about that whole shot to me it was, it was you know it seemed that the water was huge and impressive and you did the swirl and, uh, and things i just thought that the craft didn't sit in the shot particularly too well but i'd need to see that shot again because it was it was to really look at it but that was the only thing i remember at the time mentally taking a note about it. i thought that something there isn't working for me and i wasn't really sure exactly what it was at the time but apart from that everything else I'm surprised you should mention that because for me, I would say exactly the reverse. Uh, the particular shot which looked to me super realistic was actually the 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 spaceship parked in the water, basically. And if that's actually a miniature then or a bigature, then oh, maybe that was it, or maybe it was even a full scale. I don't know, because for me that that worked fine. So actually, this. I can think of one thing that it's not so much that the visual effect itself is bad because from a rendering standpoint it's completely great it's when one of these uh, robots goes into cartwheel mode across the water yeah. that looked that looked it didn't seem physically plausible with what it did in the water it was clearly like suspended by magic uh, and being able to spin through the water right, like that. but So that's more an animation issue or, uh, on that. And I would probably say that maybe the animation of the robots, uh, because they have this bizarre design, if you think about if that would actually work, if it would be able to move like that and actually walk without scraping its foot on everything and it make a lot of noise and how would it shift its weight because it was working kind of bipedally, that's probably the thing that worked the least for me. But since it, I sorted it in my compartment in the brain for coolness wins, it didn't really hurt anything. It wasn't like a major problem, but if I really have to stretch myself to find something that is problematic, I think it would be generally the animation of the robots because of their implausible design. Yeah, yeah, I sort of think, you know what you mean, I just so, again, I so applaud the robots for being interesting that, uh, like you, I just <laughs> cut an enormous amount of slack. Do you think it benefited from being shot on an IMAX camera? I mean, that would have made life really difficult, shooting this thing in a 1570 mil. 15 perf 70 mil would have just been hard, hard yakka. Because I actually think it lost something by being shot on film. So I'm going to go out on, on my uh, little ledge here and uh, maybe cut myself off. But I felt 
that I'm so used to the clarity of digital and the really great um, sharpness that you get. And that part of that stability is just absence of the weave and float and the kind of things that are, that when I was seeing a bunch of the shots, I was almost like, well, why is it not looking so good? Oh yeah, it's film. Um, I actually think digital looks better. I think I've grown to love digital. Uh, and I think it's um, nostalgia more than it is technical excellence to want to have the film look. Go on, now shoot me down. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree I with actually, you, actually. Actually, I, I don't. Oh, okay, Zap. Actually, yeah. So for me, I, I think I actually might be one of the things I did like about the movie was the actual film look. But as you know, I'm a 24 frames per second nerd. I don't want to see any of this high frame rate nonsense. Keep that away from me. Film is projected at 24 frames per second. That's the end of the story. <laughs> Etc. Uh, that's how you do stuff, okay? So maybe I'm maybe it's all nostalgia, but I, I kind of like the look. And if the look was caused by being shot of film, then okay. Uh, then I like it because of that. I think you can uh, create the same look digitally because it's just a matter of tweaking curves and do this, that, and the other thing. So I don't think you really need to shoot on film to get the film look. It's technically possible to get it other ways. Uh, but I do have an, uh, you know, a little love in my heart for the film look, and and I, you know, digital sometimes to me can look a little too sharp and too, too, uh, yeah, digital. And I think part of the problem there is actually that um, what most people don't think about in the rendering uh, and in their pipeline is that film color is actually subtractive versus uh, uh, color in. Um, uh, color in CG is additive, so that has an impact to how colors are are you know generated, how how you see them. So actually, more saturated things are toned down by film because they the more saturated stuff has to be filtered more because you have to subtractively get to that color rather than additively. I don't know if that is the thing that needs to happen more in digital to make it look nicer, because uh, otherwise I, s I feel digital uh, as much as I love it and I work with it every day, etc., uh, there's something to be said for the, the film look that, um, okay, maybe I'm nostalgic for my 24 frames and my rattling projector in the back, but hey, sue me. So you think that film should not go gently into that good night, huh? Oh, the film ca film can go gently uh, into that good night. I don't have a problem with that. It's a retarded format to actually acquire stuff on. <laughs> the look, though, <laughs> I want to keep Okay. Well, on that uh, on that fair note, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for being with us. We obviously love the film. I hope you guys did. Uh, I think that it's a film that also, I, I believe, will cause a bunch of people like ourselves to dig deeper and poke around more and learn a bit more about uh, some of the physics that's being discussed. I was fascinated at how much scientific opinion had shifted since the time of contact, which to me was... <laughs> recent history uh so yeah uh, some of the assumptions that i had about black holes had just uh were no longer held to be uh as true as they once were and there are some really interesting references to modern physics thinking uh in this film so if in that alone i think it's terrific to see a film kind of uh not you know uh speaking down to an audience and hopefully it causes a bunch of us to to get off our backsides and learn a bit more, which is just a really, really healthy thing. Hey, I want to thank uh, Todd Chalton, our producer this week, for producing a great dossier. And uh, uh, 
Ian and uh, the team for putting stuff together and, and uh, editing it up. Probably this one's been coming out of Chicago. We have a great team behind the VFX show. But in particular, I want to thank my two guests. Zap, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Where can people track you down and uh, follow what you're up to? What's your social media thing of choice? Well, I normally point people to my Twitter, uh, Master Zap on Twitter, although I noticed I tweet more seldom. I've become more of a Facebook nerd lately. Although, if you uh, go to Zap Anders on my Facebook, you mostly see weird quadcopters flying, so that might not be so interested unless you're into that. Um, as I promised last time, we will be starting up a blog here at work. Uh, as you know, I work for Autodesk in the rendering team for 3ds Max, and there will be a blog starting up, so hopefully we'll see more of me there. Uh, but for now, yeah, look at my Twitter. It's better than nothing. <laughs> Andrew, what about you? Uh, I am on Twitter at Andrew Usher uh, on Facebook and in the process of uh, redesigning our website because we're getting ready to shoot our, our own first little feature next year in our Epic Dragon. So we're in the process of changing our websites a bit. Oh, brilliant. Wow, that's really, really cool. I'd like to hear more about that. Hey, um, I wish I could do a really good Michael Caine impersonation, <clears throat> which I absolutely cannot do, especially tonight as I seem to have no voice left. Uh, and and uh, some wisecrack about you're only meant to blow the bloody doors off. I can't do it. I can't do it. But does anyone else do Michael Caine? Yeah, well, it's very easy to to have to simulate Michael Caine saying it's his own name. You simply say my cocaine, right? Okay. My cocaine. <laughs> yeah, if you say my cocaine, it's you made a my cocaine. It's very easy. You can do it. <laughs> So if you're a dr drug user, then it's very easy to see Michael Caine. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's a delightful, there's, just as an aside, there's an absolutely brilliant scene in A Trip to Italy, the English uh, comedy film, uh, where they're discussing uh, the uh, Dark Knight and how they talk and Michael Caine. And it just had me tears rolling down my face. If you're a Christopher Nolan fan and you like uh, some very funny, very intelligent kind of comedy, these two guys traveling around... Uh, uh, Michael Coogan and uh, God, what's his name? Um, uh, completely blanking. Um, really, really funny, uh, funny, funny stuff. But it's uh, yeah, it's got nothing to do with sci-fi. But they they're sitting in a restaurant and they just start having this complete natter about um, about the Dark Knight Rises and impersonating Michael Caine and, and every other character. And it's just hysterical. I think actually it's in it's online as well if you want to look it up. Uh, anyway, that's a complete aside. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the film as much as we have. We're about to head off to China for uh, FX Guide at SIDGRAPH Asia. Uh, so we'll be coming from there. I don't suppose you're going to make it out to Asia, Zap? Uh, don't think so, no. Okay. Well, we'll report on everything that's going There's some really interesting stuff coming out there. In fact, uh, one talk in particular on rendering eyes uh, for motion capture and very good eye work. I've been desperately trying to get info on it and uh, we'll have it on FX Guide. I'm, if nothing else, I'm just going to go to the talk and then write everything that he says because it's uh, from Disney Research and they're a very good group. But that's all coming up on FX Guide plus a bunch more as we head up towards the end of the season. Some great films coming out, Hunger Games, uh, The uh, Battle of the Five Armies, all those will be covered, of course, here on the VFX Show. Again, thanks to the team. Thanks for you, listeners, for being with us. I'm Mike Simmel. See you. questions or comments please email us at vfx at fxguide.com copyright 2012 fx guide llc